Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Age of Radio. Hey, everybody. This is Steve. I just want to let you know that for all the latest on our podcast, uh, hit us up at EILF Movies. That's everything I learned from movies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we're also on Patreon if you want to check that out. But our homepage is with the Age of Radio Network at ageofradio.org slash everything I learned from movies. And if you're looking for some amazing art, check out my wife's Etsy page at untidyvenus.etsy.com. All kinds of great stuff there. Also, follow us at PodCartFest, that's P-O-D-C-A-R-T-F-E-S-T, for our periodic art and podcasting festival that we're going to be hosting. It's, uh, it's actually pretty cool. Check it out. So yeah, on that note, let's get to the show. Everything I learned from movies Helps to make life a little bit groovy With a one last plot holes a gratuitous boobies It's time to get busy With your friend Steve and Izzy Hey everybody, it's Steve again. Um, as you may have been told several times over the past couple of months, this past April 10th, we did Podcart Fest, uh, which is a celebration of podcasting and art. A little virtual festival where artists can demonstrate what they do, as well as podcasters, and uh, try to make some money over these troubling times. Uh, but during that portion, we had a nice little Q&A with director Brian Trenchard-Smith. Uh, you may know him from Man from Hong Kong, uh, Turkey Shoot, Drive Hard, like Leprechaun 3, Leprechaun in Space, just uh, dozens and dozens of incredible movies. But yeah, enjoy. I can hear you. Excellent. Hey, we got right. it. <laughs> um, I'm trying to get back in again. Well, you are on the Zoom, so... Yeah, so you're on the Zoom, we can hear you and everything, so it should be coming up on the live stream okay. here momentarily, but, oh, um, you, you, but yeah. Yeah, it should be muted. So, so you're, you're hearing me without delay? Yes. 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 Okay, yes. and you don't need to see me. We don't uh, have to, unless you'd like to. to. No, no. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here, but uh, I don't know whether you can see me or not, and you don't have to. I can be the Invisible Man. Excellent. An excellent, excellent film, incidentally, the remake. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yes. <laughs> one of probably a, one of my favorites from last year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, and it was so good to see Lee Wanell, who's you know, uh, you know, was the co-director of of, of uh, Saw, getting uh, uh, a good opportunity uh, to show that he has got talent too. Uh, and uh, so I was I was really impressed with the you know the reboot of the Invisible Man, of course. Yeah. It helps to have such a stellar actress in the uh, in the lead. Yeah, she oh, was yeah, yeah, absolutely all around the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> when is she going to do another Handmaid's Tale? Uh, I want to see what happens next. Yeah. I want to see the patriarchy get it in the ass. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Excellent. Well, uh, Mr. Trencher Smith, again, uh, thank you for joining us here at the first ever Podcast Fest, a celebration of art and podcasting. Uh, but of course, we have you on because you're just such such an amazing story uh, uh for those who don't know there's this little book out there by author brian trenchard smith uh adventures in the b movie trade which is amazing and everyone should get but uh 
the man's here to uh, uh can you just give us a, a quick background as to uh what what you've done in in the movie industry well it's all in the book as you say if you read the book uh then you can answer a short quiz thereafter yes it's a a, a lot of 200 pages of pictures in that uh, uh and of course they're in black and white in the paperback because i I wanted to make the paperback affordable at twenty dollars uh, in the U.S. Uh, the Kindle is nine ninety nine, and if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. Uh, I think I get a, a quarter of a cent for every page uh, <laughs> that you read on Kindle Unlimited, uh, but that's fine. I'm I'm very happy for people to read it for free. Uh, it's, I prefer them to read it for for pay, but I'm uh, the main thing is that they read it. Um, but uh, I wrote it because, well, uh, I think it. I've had an interesting career in what is really, I think, an era of recorded entertainment production that is so now over in a way. I mean, sure, our movies and television will always be made, but um, COVID has really changed the uh, the dynamics. We hope that the the, the cinema business will. Uh, pick up as it has, Godzilla and King Kong are knocking it into shape right now. Uh, and that's, that's good. I mean, the taste is there uh, for sure. I, I, I'm about to see my first movie in over a year and that will be Godzilla versus King Kong. Um, and uh, nothing like a good kaiju punch up to uh, you know, get you going back to the cinema again. Uh, but but for a year, people have have gone to streaming, uh, and it's a it's a comfortable way to see movies. It doesn't have the same experience as sharing it with a group of friends and strangers and responding in your various ways to what you see on the screen in a darkened room where your entire focus is on the screen and. There aren't sort of um, yeah, other distractions in the room, too much light, pets that want attention, bladder that needs attention, uh, things like that. Uh, but go to the movies and you, your entire focus is on the, the drama or the comedy. Um, and it's a, it, hopefully that's, it, it's not an experience that's going to, to die. But uh, so COVID certainly had a, an impact upon people's viewing habits and also upon the ability to to make films in you know, health you know, safety uh, manner. Uh, so hopefully by the end of the year, you know, we'll almost be back to normal. Though, you know, I think frankly, I'll be I'll be wearing a mask you know, w- with strangers uh, and with people I know have not been vaccinated, and certainly anti-vaxxers. Um, happy to talk to you, but I'm going to put my mask on. Absolutely. Uh, We're right there yeah. with you. <laughs> oh, well, there was an anti-vaxxer swimming in the next lane at the pool. Again, I, at last, I can go back to the pool. I'm, I've now been made safe for democracy. You see, I've had my second jab, uh, waited two more weeks. Um, but I had an anti-vaxxer in the next lane of the pool who, who wore a, who has a Trump swimming cap. Uh, yes proud lady Um, and she thinks the vaccine is a hoax the hospitals were all trying to get more money by inflating the number of deaths and uh, and actually it's all you know it's all satan's work oh dear okay anyway i swam on quickly 
Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, back to more reasonable people like Godzilla and King Kong. Uh, and the movies are good for you. And so I hope everyone is going to go to the, the, the cinema and boost that area of the trade and not just stay at home and watch on uh, streaming. But you obviously, you may have had a, a couple of questions. I, I, I wrote the book primarily to show a career that spanned over 50 years and is still sort of uh, staggering on uh, as I sort of hit 75. You know, I've been working really since I was 18 in this business. Um, and uh, so I thought young people wanting to enter the business, uh, people who are just sort of getting started and even old veterans like myself uh, will find my particular career path that took me initially from England to then to Australia then to America uh, and caused me to make films all over the world, whether they find that uh, hopefully that that career path um, interesting and instructive. I've talked about every single film and, you know, basically the collection of TV shows, TV specials that I made when I was a television executive before I went independent at 27 and started making my own films. I've talked about each of those productions. I made 41 long forms, 43 episodes of television that made over 100 trailers for theatrically released movies um, before I stopped counting, and, uh, and a few other things as well, uh, short, you know, prize-winning shorts, etc. So I thought, you know, this is a, a, a particular journey, and it, albeit in an era that has now changed, um, but people might find it uh, instructive. And most importantly, I wanted them to find it amusing. So I have told it with a degree of humor. Uh, and, yeah. and I've been honest about my mistakes, which I think if you want to grow in any profession, film or you know, whatever profession it is, uh, you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to recognize mistakes and, uh, and learn from them. Luckily, my mistakes didn't seem to stop me going forward. But, I mean, if you push uh, with enough energy, uh, you will generally go forward. So my advice to all people who want to get into the film business is first to be absolutely sure you want to. The effort and the sacrifice, um, and then just be persistent. Yeah, exactly. Having read through the book, yeah, it's it's a very like, you know, starting out with like Australian television and then becoming like the manager of the department and then moving to another station, like a very, there's a very good progression and like learning from all the experiences and stuff from it that just kind of builds on itself. And as you said, told in a very humorous way and some great little anecdotal stories and stuff like that. And even historic snippets i guess i'm trying to say mm -hmm. uh, of yeah. like australian history that may uh, everybody may not be aware of that it's like we did it this way because you know 20 years earlier this prime minister did this it's it's a just a great read throughout like there's not a dull page and there's and there's plenty of pictures which keeps somebody like me focused <laughs> yeah <laughs> well look i mean i'm talking about a visual medium so you've got to have it uh, yeah <laughs> you know i haven't done an audio book uh, it's occurred to me yeah, should I do an audio book that actually has, that is more like a, a, a book, a video audio book? Because I could probably illustrate every single page with yeah, I mean, other, with, with, you know, other illustrations that I didn't put in the book uh, and even, you know, video clips via YouTube. So if you're, audio book you know you could 
use a link in an audio book uh, to go to, to video, that would be interesting too. Uh, yeah, they, they translate anyway. pretty well. Like, yeah, just with all the, I mean, there's already a lot of pictures and stuff and you kind of match the stories up with, or at least the time frame yeah. and setting yeah. the stage. But yeah, that'd be yeah. pretty cool. Well, I mean, uh, so I may do a, uh, an audiobook version of it uh, at some point, um, and yeah, we'll see. But right now, people seem to enjoy it, as you do, and I'm, I'm glad of that. Excellent. Are there any specific questions that uh, about any of the films that you wanted to ask? Uh, certainly. Well, we do have a, a question from Drew with the uh, Real Feels podcast, one of our buddies. He says, as a huge fan of the Leprechaun franchise, I want to commend Brian for his work and direction. Always a good watch with those films. You did uh, the third one and the fourth one, the Leprechaun in Space, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, Le Leprechaun in Vegas and Leprechaun in Space. And they, they, you know, they were no normally just had, meant to have numbers after the name, but but uh, I, I, I prevailed upon them to, because I think Vegas would have been a, a good addition to the title uh, of number three but they were sticking to Roman numerals at that point. Um, yeah, but by, by four, I said, really, I think, you know, you know, this is a wacky, outrageous idea to take the leprechaun to space. I mean, I know Jason went to space too. Uh, um, Freddie never went to space. Um, there's still time. And, uh, no, there's still time. <laughs> and, I, and, and I do that one. Um, and, uh, you know, um, yeah. Uh, Angela, Queen of the Demons of uh, Night of the Demons uh, franchise, she never went to space, um, uh, and uh, but yeah, perhaps she should. Um, uh, a female serial killer on the space station? Wow, there's something there. Uh, so I enjoyed making those movies, and I don't know whether your your, your friend has a a very specific question about them. Uh, well, here we can give him a minute or two in the chat. But Drew, do you have any specific yes. questions about the yeah. Leprechaun movies? He does did mention here uh, Pinhead went to space, and I also want to throw in Land oh. Before Time went to space. The Brave Little Toaster went to space. <laughs> Ice Age movies went to space. So everybody goes to space. Okay, yeah, there's a gap <laughs> in my education there. Uh, yeah, good. The Brave Little Toaster went to space. Now there's a movie. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it's a movie. Nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's good. Well, I'm glad he liked them. Uh, I mean, I uh, there are examples of what I would call my sort of uh, absurdist cinema taste. Let's say. I mean, I grew up uh, in England, and you know, ab absurdist British humour like The Goon Show. Uh, then there was you know various others you'd be unfamiliar with until Monty Python came along and um, all Americans I, I think should be uh, familiar uh, with uh, Monty Python and um, it, Monty Python is good for the soul uh, uh, and so the absurdist humor of Monty Python and uh, you know, certainly was an influence upon me and so I brought that to bear upon the leprechaun films um, so uh, when we got to space you know we were it's certainly becoming more absurd because it's an inherently absurd concept. Uh, there was one uh, stipulation that distributors uh, or, or really the, the, the video wholesalers who would buy copies from uh, the distributor at 50 bucks and sell them to mom and pop video stores for 100 bucks. And they would have conventions in the Middle West and they, they were important clients to service and they say we must have some topless nudity in these films essential for our 
our buyers. So you must have it. So I thought hard, and so did my writing partner, Dennis Pratt, uh, who wrote, you know, uh, Leprechaun in Space. And we thought, what is the most absurd reason we could have for a woman to bear her breasts? And this is before Me Too, of course. Uh, of course. And I'm probably having a Me Too moment even discussing it. Uh, I thought, what is the most absurd reason to do this? Well, so we came up with the fact that the uh, the... You know, the, 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 the one of the female leads, Princess Zarina, was from you know, an, ex an exotic royal family, somewhat in the somewhere in the outer galaxies, and in their planet, uh, when a member of the royal family bears her breasts, it is actually a death sentence for you. you know. Yes, look upon them uh, and fear. You know uh, what your fate will be. One of the cast, you know, had had, had, had yeah, didn't quite. Yet, what his fate would be, but anyway, uh, so it, 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 we we thought, okay, this is a, a an absurd and no doubt retrograde requirement by the video market. So how can I point to its absurdity? And you know, Rebecca Carlton was an Australian actress who played the part, uh, and she brought her mother along with her for that particular scene. And mm. you know, she, it, it, you know, I think you can find the scene on on YouTube, but I don't think it it is is not shown or in the television version uh, anyway it's uh, it's one of my proudest moments really to uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes to satirize uh, the tropes and the the strange requirements of the uh, director video business absolutely and uh, another question from drew just kind of following up on that he's asking uh, with the hype of fan favorite freddie versus jason would you ever uh, be up for making a leprechaun versus chucky movie um, or if that could happen. And uh, I, well, I had to mention, yeah. I actually made a poster for this in college and called it Chucky versus Lucky. Um, <laughs> but is this something yeah. that would be interest you? <laughs> hey, I, I would make that but if I could make it funny. Um, I think actually some of the more recent Chucky movies, uh, yeah, um, sort of Bride of Chucky or S Spawn of Chucky, um, were really quite funny. Uh, and I, I kind of uh, I like like them a lot, actually, uh, uh, because they they really got with the absurdist nature of such films. Um, no, definitely, you know, uh, Leprechaun versus Ch Chucky. I mean, I guess it's up to to Lionsgate to sort of uh, do a deal with uh, you know the uh, copyright owners of uh, you know, of Chucky, um, but. You know, I mean, it's it's it, it has to have something about it that makes it stand out in the marketplace. I mean, we've had a lot of sort of puppet master movies. We've had, you know, that this is a genre that has uh, has been fairly well mined. Let's say demonic little people. But I, I, I'm I'm game. I just try and think of something fresh. I, I you got the money, I got the time. Uh, <laughs> so any any other questions? Uh... Yeah, Drew's just agreeing that, like, yeah, um, Spawn of Chucky, yeah, was very meta and in on the joke. And, uh, oh, yeah, Puppet Master is his favorite franchise, which is great. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of murderous oh, little people. <laughs> yeah, Puppet Master was fun. And, and yeah. in its day, you know, it was, you know, they had no money and they went to Bulgaria, I think, to make it for no money, which because you don't pay people in Bulgaria, I guess. Uh, and um, I think it was Bulgaria. And it, it was... Um, 
eastern country where you can get people to work for very little. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so that's how they were able to make them and make a, yeah, a very handsome profit on them. And the doll master and doll, anyway, there were a lot of little puppet people going on in Bulgaria. Um, perhaps it's a local culture, I don't know. Borat meets uh, Bulgaria. Uh, there, there's, there's a movie for you. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so go on, ask, ask away. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say back uh, in the 70s and 80s and even in the early 90s, like a lot of your movies were really focused on like, uh, like, like sp- stunts and explosions and kind of pushing the envelope with that with like, you know, the, the big jump in dead end drive in. And mm-hmm. uh, of course working with like uh, legendary stuntman Grant page. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the, uh, I, I don't know, some of the things you're most proud of about that, like some of the, the bigger stunts or, you know, coordinating or maybe it's the location. So some of your favorite projects to work on kind of yeah. thing. Well, yes, God, uh, so many, you know, I mean, uh, I'm like old Mother Hubbard, you know, I, I have so many children. All my films are my children and I care about them. Uh, some of them are a little misshapen. Some of them are dumber than others. Uh, but uh, I love them all. But I'm very proud of The Man from Hong Kong, which was a monumental effort to make as a first feature film after basically making dramatized documentaries uh, on shoestring budgets. Uh, so... Uh, the man from Hong Kong uh, is, you know, you know, still holds up today. People, you know, it keeps getting recycled on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, I think there'll be another Blu-ray version coming out later this year, which will include the original Noel Quinlan soundtrack, including uh, the song that was originally intended for the opening titles, but we decided at, at uh, advice from the distributor that if you take a song from this band you know, known as Jigsaw, British Jigsaw, we will probably get a number one hit uh, and that will really boost the film's uh, performance in the UK. So we duly said, okay, it, you know, the song which was originally entitled Power uh, is a fine song, but Sky High by British Jigsaw arranged by Richard Hewson, who arranged for the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel, uh, and is, uh, is responsible for that great opening uh, drive. Brian, are you still there? Can you hear us? We seem to have lost you. We might have just lost internet connection or something. Sorry, yeah. guys, it'll just be one moment. Yeah, yeah, but guys, like, seriously, um, go get The Man from Hong Kong DVD. The one that's out currently comes with, like, Five films, including two of those documentaries that he was talking about he made. Man from Hong Kong is amazing. It is one of the most amazing action movies you've never seen. It... in town. He's beginning to annoy me. Yeah, I think he should meet with a slight accident. Jimmy Wong Yu is the man from Hong Kong. George Lazenby is Jack Wilton. Gunrunner, 
dope peddler, ruthless czar of international evil. Hey, don't give me any shit. Provoke him at your peril. I want that lunatic stopped. Nothing stands in his way. For long, nobody is safe from the man from Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Man from Hong Kong. It's amazing. So, so fabulous. Yeah, and then there's a bunch of documentaries, a lot of them around uh, Grant Page, the stunt guy. And when you watch these documentaries, you have a whole, like, extra level of admiration for what stunt people do. Like, a lot of what Janet was talking about earlier, like... It, they make it look easy, and then when you try and do even the smallest thing that they do, you're just like, oh, no, no, this is a skill set I don't have. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, and then the adventures in the B-movie trade. Um, it's 20 bucks. It's a huge, huge book. So many cool pictures. I'm disappearing every time yeah. I show things. <laughs> um, yeah, so many cool pictures from back in the day. Um, so many amazing stories and told in a really like uh, obtainable way like it, it's a, it's an easy read as you heard Brian's storytelling is absolutely phenomenal he has an amazing storied career yeah so excited and I'm not gonna lie I would be thrilled to see even another version of uh, Man from Hong Kong I'd be okay owning that yeah absolutely and uh, but if you get the blu-ray it specifically comes with stunt rock which is a movie centered around stuntman grant page Mm -hmm. but there's also a team of stuntmen that are also a rock band oh wait wait wait. so it's a story about a rock band who are also stunt guys Mm -hmm. so super cool and then if you listen to our interview that we did with brian uh over on everything i learned from movies he tells a wonderful story about how the only band that was available were also magicians and mm-hmm. so they are magicians stuntmen rockers fantastic holy cow right. <gasps> brian's, brian's back. back here we go welcome back brian hi i'm sorry uh we have bandwidth problems up here in rural oregon somehow you know so, sometimes if we get a, a phone call on the landline that will you know bump me off the internet but yeah. suddenly bingo it just cut out and um anyway glad to find you take me to, to find you back again good yeah absolutely welcome, welcome back. back and we have some questions for you yeah. if you've uh, got a few minutes uh from uh, drew again is there a film that got away within your career or something that you had the chance to direct or perhaps a project that fell through sorry is there a project that got away oh too many you know um <laughs> I mean, I wrote a great screenplay called The Executioner's Daughter, which took place in the uh, 16th century and present day simultaneously via a past life swap. And it uh, was like Game of Thrones meets Jason Bourne on Freaky Friday. Uh, And uh, it was optioned twice for good money, uh, but we could never get Scarlett Johansson or Keira Knightley or any of the young uh, hot stars of uh, 2009 to play the female lead. It was very much female driven. And frankly, her, her her part is more interesting than the guy. You know, that probably is a problem with it commercially. But uh, but I hope those times are changing. Anyway, it, we could, we, a lot of people liked it. A lot of people wanted to do it, but we couldn't get a star of sufficient wattage 
Um, so it languished and eventually the rights returned to me. So I, uh, I invented, ended up writing it uh, again as a novel. And it is available if you like the way I write things. Uh, it's called Alice Through the Multiverse. Um, and uh, it's also available on Amazon and Kindle. It, it's a ripping yarn of 250 pages. I've been uh, commendably shorter than my autobiography. Um, if you like the kind of subject matter I've just described, uh, I think you'll find Alice Through the Multiverse will be a page turner for you before you go to bed or on a wet afternoon or whatever, you know, whatever your reading circumstances are. Uh, oh, I see a cat. Hello. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this is Poe, one of our, uh, little torty twins. Uh, I think she might see a bug in the window, which is just to the side okay. of us. So I might lose her right. here in a second. <laughs> that's all right. No, that's good. I had a cat jumping on me, uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but that was one that got away. I mean, there was, you'll see a few more listed in the book, but you know, I've always wanted to do a uh, you know, big historical reenactment series. Uh, initially, I wrote such a, a, you know, a, a, a format for one. It was called Battles That Changed the World and I took it to various basic cable companies in 1990. And they all said, um, oh, I don't know, you know, that's that's. Uh, your approach seems to be you know, maybe a little too literate, a little too historically, um, you know, uh, faithful. Um, and so they all made their own versions of various battles that changed the world and, you know, with rather appalling CGI in the early days. And uh, uh, so some of those shows have got a bit better now. They put some money into them and uh, the BBC have done some really you know, good things about, you know, uh, great Roman generals and things like that, where they, you know, they put some money and put, put it on the screen. But I, I, I find history interesting. I think there's a lot to be learned from history. If we don't learn lessons from history, we're bound to repeat its disasters. Um, and I think history should, is, is not you know, a dead, boring subject. It's actually very relevant to present day. My wife does online teaching every afternoon uh, to a Korean learning center. I sometimes am in the kitchen listening to her doing it via Zoom. Uh, and I'm really, you know, learning a lot about history that I didn't already know. Um, it's fascinating, and, uh, it, it, particularly when you relate past events to their subsequent consequences globally or in individual countries you know, uh, economically, socially, all sorts of ways in which you know, history, you know, leaves its mark upon us. Uh, uh, so, so th those, are, those are two projects I really would have liked to have done. I've also written a revisionist version of Richard III, um, which I've uh, researched quite a lot. Um, Richard III is probably known to most people as the, the man, the king who murdered the princes in the tower. Well, my, my screenplay is, in fact, the case for the defense. Um, it wasn't him. It was, I guess it was the, what, what, the, what law enforcement these days would require, call the, the SODI defense, S-O-D-I. Some other dude did it. Uh, well, it wasn't Richard III. It, it could have been the Duke of Buckingham uh, in order to advance his cause, et cetera, et cetera. It could have been Henry VII himself. 
um, when he finally killed Richard in battle and uh, took the throne. Anyway, the, 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 the climax of the British Wars of the Roses is a fascinating story. Uh, but Richard was maligned, um, and I don't believe he murdered his nephews. Uh, who you know would would sit on his knee every Christmas time when they were small children? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who would do that. But uh, anyway, it's a fascinating period. Richard was a reformer, but he ran up against the church, who did not want reform, and he ran up against the the magnates, you know, the barons who controlled the economy and vast you know, swaths of the country, and uh, they didn't like his idea for change and more egalitarianism so uh or for banning people archers coming into a court and intimidating uh the trial um which you know if, if you're a powerful man you could arrange that to uh, prevent someone being found guilty or so forth so anyway he, he was a reformer and i'm all in favor of reformers um and so i wanted to tell his story and maybe one day i will um because you know, uh, eventually everything has its ha has its time. Ripeness is all, and my Richard the Third is probably not quite ripe enough yet. But we'll we'll see. Uh, anyway, um, so those are three that uh, I'd like to make. I mean, there are half a dozen others that uh, never quite got made. But uh, I'm lucky to have made as many as I have. Um, yeah, so see, forty plus. That's a that's, that's that's quite the career, and, and mm -hmm. on top of everything else, too. And like a couple of books. documentaries. Yeah, make writing books and stuff. Yeah, I, I guess I have eighty you know, recorded entertainment credits uh, when you count my episodes of television and a couple of my short films. Uh, one of which I'll recommend to you now. You can get it on YouTube. It's called Hospitals Don't Burn Down. A somewhat misleading title. And it was made as a, initially commissioned as a fire safety film for the Australian Veteran Affairs Department that was suffering quite you know, a lot of spot fires in their various hospitals in the uh, early 70s. And they thought, well, we need to educate our staff about things that you know, would prevent this. There are you know, issues with you know, housekeeping. You don't leave things lying around that make good fuel, various fire safety precautions. So we did it as a dramatized documentary for 25 minutes in which uh, fire breaks out in a multi-story hospital in the basement and spreads to the sixth floor via the laundry chute. Uh, when it was is opened, it releases oxygen and suddenly a great tongue of flame blasts out of the ox uh, after the, out of the laundry chute uh, opener on the sixth floor incinerates a nurse uh, and spreads along the corridor of the uh, uh, of the sixth floor thereby cutting the hospital in half so while we were making the movie we uh, kind of christened it the towering infirmary uh, if you know that particular disaster movie of the 70s, yeah. uh, which is more in our minds, of course, in 1977 when we made it, in most people's minds uh, now, I realize sometimes with all the references I make, I am a dinosaur uh, and uh, probably your average 20 year old says, what, who, who was that? What was that? Uh, never heard of that. 
Uh, so, uh, some some of my jokes fall on stony ground as a result uh, <laughs> with the young. Um, anyway, but hospitals don't burn Vin down. Diesel in that one? I, yeah, I well, they, we could have used Vin Diesel. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so it, it it was quite a an achievement we to actually spend be able to have. We made it for eighty grand, but everyone worked for very little. Uh, it, it looks quite good. Uh, and so it was entered into some film festivals for short films and medical uh, films and won a bunch of prizes. Um, uh, it was considered so, well, kind of horrific and scary uh, because we, 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 we killed a few people uh, and showed it. We had a, a charred corpse uh, who, that appears in one scene you know, when the fire brigade come in to clear things and you know, we christened him. We named him after another actor called, whose name was Chard Haywood. So whenever we <laughs> wanted the prop body, uh, you know, brought to the set, uh, smouldering, um, uh, I said, "Okay, you know, br bring in Chard Haywood." I think the actor himself eventually heard that story. I don't think he found it very amusing. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, I, I did. I treated it like a horror movie, and it was originally intended to be a, a fire safety film. But it worked. And so they made it compulsory for every member of the Australian, initially veteran affairs hospitals, and then eventually every hospital in Australia, um, every person who joined the staff had to see the film uh, on their first or second day. And that, that went on for 30 years. Uh, and I was <clears throat> told some years later that a one of the lessons in the film is don't keep your non-ambulatory patients on a high floor, uh, and I show an instance of that. You know, actually, I'm, I'm acting in it as a surgeon helping to wheel a you know, operating theater uh, cart out because the, they had to stop the operation because the hospital's caught fire. But a particular hospital in the north coast of New South Wales, four stories high, had its uh, ICU on the top floor, and uh, they saw the film, thought, eh, let's move it to the ground floor. And several months later, the top floor caught fire and was gutted. So that was one of the few good things that have come out of my movies. Uh, I actually, you know, struck a blow for good. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that, that was, you know, I, that was, that's gratifying when that happens. And it was worth, to, to learn that was worth more than, you know, the money I got for making it, um, which wasn't much. Uh, but it was saved lives. Yeah. I, my, my movies are generally about the the loss of life, uh, massive <laughs> destruction of uh, of people. Um, uh, but uh, in this case, it, it actually had a a real world effect and uh, maybe saved some lives. Um, so I'm proud of it. So, are there any other questions that anyone has? Oh, well, I had one. Um... So uh, you in the I think it was eighty four eighty five or so you directed uh, BMX Bandits, which I know at least my generation <coughs> turning forty in a couple of weeks, um, <laughs> like we'd seen this like growing up, and uh, you know it, everyone knows it as like I guess kind of the debut of Nicole Kidman that people could actually see and all that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what was it like working with you know a, a younger actors and i guess kind of a mix of both adults and younger actors but working with kids and stunts <laughs> yeah yeah now that's uh, look i uh, i am a big kid so uh even at my advanced age 
uh, nothing has changed. Uh, so I've always enjoyed working with young people. Um, so working with Nicole and Angelo and James on BMX Bandits was a joy. Uh, I got to be 15 again. And the way to work with young people is to you know, be a kid alongside them. Obviously, as a director, you're also, you know, you're, you're their, their guide and guardian uh, through the film, uh, and they depend upon you to be right. Uh, so it's a, it's a job I take seriously, but I like having fun with it. Uh, so it was, you know, and similarly with Frog Dreaming or The Quest, as it's known in the United States, which I did with Henry Thomas, the kid from E.T., he was you know, just turning 14 at the time, uh, just a wonderful guy. Uh, and I didn't treat him as a kid. I treat, just treated him as a, an adult uh, who just you know, was less experienced than I. Um, but he said, would you mind if I occasionally made a suggestion? Uh, because I, another director had not liked that from a 14-year-old, and certainly. Um, and I said, no, please make some suggestions. And occasionally... Because I think he, you know, he he learned from Spielberg. Um, he suggested a couple of, you know, a, a couple of times he he wanted to do that, uh, you know, to step forward into camera and and, and make a, make his own close up uh, as the as the camera dollied in. Uh, and uh, you know, he he you know, he he was quite sort of camera savvy. For, uh, so, but I have no objection to anyone making a suggestion. If I don't like it, I don't have to use it. But uh, um, uh, <clears throat> I think it's a collaborative medium, and you need to to listen to other people and uh, ingest their ideas and use the best of them, as well as your if they can make any of your ideas better. Makes sense. Yeah, just you know, I mean, I mean, you know, with the young actors, like they're still actors, like they're still learning and growing every time. They've been doing it for even if they're like fourteen years old probably seven, eight years of their life. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd say uh, look, Jodie Foster is a great director. Not should, she should direct more often. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, she, from, you know, the earliest age, you know, God, wasn't she a Gerber baby or something once upon a time? <laughs> yeah, something uh, like that. But anyway, she, she was working in commercials as a, as a child uh, and went on from there and then did, you know, Bugsy Malone and then, Little House on the Left, and uh, was it the Girl Down? I forget which of those horror films it was, but and uh, you know, one, you know, once you know, she had uh, um, done Taxi Driver. Well, but she she worked with the best and learned from them. And uh, I, I wish she had you know spent more time making films uh, and you know, bringing her particular intellect, which is considerable, uh, to filmmaking. But you no, know, there you go. When, when do I run out of time with you guys? Oh, okay, so another uh, five minutes or so. It's just at the, the okay. end of the hour, we got somebody else coming yeah. on. But yeah. Good. <laughs> and so, and you, you will need a break from me at that point. Yes. Oh, oh. never. I could listen to you talk Speak all day. So. Well, look, <laughs> I, I will consume vast amounts of oxygen uh, <laughs> if you allow me to. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. Suck it right out of the, the room and maybe out of Facebook or, or uh, altogether. Um, so, uh, have your, uh, your uh, have the participants in the podcast festival been having a good time? Have you been well attended? Oh yeah, yeah, we've yeah. Uh, had a you know it kind of fluctuates a little bit, but we've had a couple uh, a dozen people kind of throughout the day. And mm -hmm. uh, let's say we talked to uh, Janet Varney, uh, comedian and actress, uh, earlier in the day, and mm -hmm. 
gosh, six or seven uh, incredible artists that we have uh, booths down below. If y'all want to check them out. <laughs> For everybody watching the live stream, booths are all yep. down below. <laughs> yeah, we've had some demos and stuff. It's been great. And we really, yeah. really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with us and being part of the very first Podcart Fest. We hope to do this again. And we, we always love having you on. If you ever just want to come on the podcast again. Well, you know, they, they say I hate a chat, but don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I'll be happy to suck the oxygen out of your program anytime. Oh. Uh, yeah. uh, I also saw you had jumped in for the sticker giveaway. So uh, when we get done here, shoot Steve an email and I will send you some stickers that, from my shop as a thank you for uh, thank you for being on, being one of our lovely guests. Absolutely. No, I've been and your lovely host. So thank you very much for thinking of me and, uh, and for directing people towards the book. Now, should I just sign off now so you could have a breather before uh, your next <laughs> guest? You know, like a drink of water, bathroom break, something like that. Before you go, I just wanted to ask, uh, where should people follow you? Where should, is there any social media you do, web pages? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm on, you see, I, I, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, and I suppose I, I'm also on Twitter, but I very rarely tweet. Uh, but I'm on Facebook so that you know, people of a particular sensibility can uh, plug in uh, uh, and uh, mainly I on Facebook, I do movie posts um, uh, about you know, movie subjects that interest me. Sometimes I you know, put them initially on my blog. Um, and you know, I'm you know, Brian Trenchard Smith you know, dot com. Uh, uh, you can, you can, anyway, my blog is linked on the Facebook page. I have 5,000 uh, Facebook friends, or let's say 4,999, and my 5,000 <laughs> is a minute. Now, some of them I'm quite sure are Russian bots. Uh, or, uh, you know, mail order brides from uh, the Ukraine. Um, and uh, and I'm not really in the market for any more uh, mail order brides. Thank you. I've um, had my ration. Um, You've had your phone. Uh, well, I know at least so, one of those friends on Facebook is me, and I really appreciate the updates on your uh, your pet deer that you have outside of your house. Yes. So. yes we've yeah, well, I'm an animal lover, so I post about movies. I post about deer and squirrels and birds. Uh, and cats, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and occasionally bears that uh, are raised as a family member. I don't know whether you saw that particular post um, in in, uh, in Russia. Um, they've had this bear living in their house for twenty five years. Wow. Um, anyway, you you'll find the video somewhere. That's we'll trace it way back on my Facebook page about a month ago or so. Uh, but so uh, you know, I could be much more Instagrammy and WhatsAppy and TikToky and whatever. But I don't want to become a slave to social media because yeah. I do want to leave the computer screen. And you know, I still write stuff. Uh, I do these extensive blogs, either Trailers from Hell or Joe Dante's Trailers from Hell site. Uh, I'm just in the, uh, I've just finished writing uh, one on yeah, Stephen Chow's movies, um, uh, Kung Fu Hustle being one of them, and I've featured that one. But he's you know, made some wonderful films. Uh, uh, but he's like a Chinese auteur that most people are not aware of in the States, uh, and he's brilliant. So I do that, and um, so I, I have writing and research to do, which keeps me at the computer screen. Um, but there's a great outdoors uh, in, in Oregon that I would also like to participate in. Uh, so I have to limit yeah, how, how much I chain myself to social media. And 
and it is an addiction and you have to be careful that it doesn't just consume time you should be putting into broadening yourself in so many other ways, um, not the least of which is taking exercise and reading books uh, and going for country walks. They're about yeah, the British habit, country walks. Um, <laughs> While you're uh, doing that, also, you can be like Drew, who apparently just ordered Dead End Drive-In, uh, The Man <laughs> from Hong Kong, The Day of the Panther and Strike of the Panther. And I'm pretty sure he's going to get adventures in the B-movie trade and Alice Through the Multiverse to read later because he loves a good <laughs> book. Well, good. I, I, I do think they're good books in, in, in their respective ways. And for your war movie lovers, um, it's hard, war movie lovers. They're not war lovers, they're just war movie lovers. Yeah. Um, I recommend My Two Sahara with James Belushi in the Humphrey Bogart role and Siege of Firebase Gloria with the wonderful R. Lee Ermey uh, from the Drill Sergeant from Full Metal Jacket and uh, Wings Hauser. That's my Vietnam uh, film, Sahara being my World War II film, uh, and Britannic being my World War I film. Yeah. Anyway, there's, you all got homework now. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Richard Smith. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Give, give thank, him a follow. Thank you for, check out the website. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> definitely shoot Steve uh, an email with your address, and I'll send you some stickers and some thank you merch. Well, thank you very much. I love it. Thank you. Well, and thank have you. a great rest of your day. Will do. Thank night. you so much. <laughs> and thank you for all of you who, who stayed listening. Well done. <laughs> okay. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Oh, and yes, thank you everybody who is still is listening to the stream and supporting the vendors, including myself. I am Untidy Venus. I've not been manning my booth because I've been manning your podcast feed. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, guys, Brian Treasure Smith, so many absolutely just phenomenal projects he's done. Such an accomplished man. Definitely, like go pick up some books, pick up some movies, you will not be disappointed. Absolutely, like Adventures in the Bee Movie Trade. Ah, there we go. It's, it's like the nice, best 20 big, bucks book. you can spend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we have our next artist coming up. We have Sarah with <gasps> Basmati Bags. Hello, Sarah, are you there? I'm coming, I'm coming. All right. <laughs> Let me just get out or mute my podcast cart so I'm not confusing everybody. <laughs> But thank you guys, everybody out there who's, like I said, still listening, still excited. We're having so much fun. We're so grateful to all of you vendors who decided to take a chance on us for the very first time. All of you uh, participants who are coming and supporting the podcasts and the artists and um, just uh, having so much fun. So thank you guys so, so, so much. Yeah. There, I hey, oh, there we, we see hey. you. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. So you guys are... you pulled the curtain back. I almost never come up uh, live, but I figured today was a day. It's special. It's the first podcast ever. So yeah, here I am. And I, <laughs> I did share um, a little kind of behind the scenes video that I sent to Steve so we can watch that. But I also wanted to make myself available to kind of chat afterwards and ask questions. So Steve, I don't know if you want to play that first, but uh, yeah. um, a little fun fact is that, so I logged on dutifully at nine o'clock and I started from scratch this bag which is now almost done so this is our official oh, nice. pod fest day of basmati bags so literally it was a pile of fabric this morning and so i just thought that was cool that you know 
That's amazing. The magic is happening right now. In one Before Pop-Tart I... Fest, you can get a bag. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's check out the video here. Let me just... And I, like Brian, can talk forever and ever. So that's what the universe wants us to do, then I'm happy to do that as well. I was going to say, okay. uh, would you like to talk a little bit about your bags while Steve is sure. holding this up? Sure. So the business's name is Basmati Bags. It's about 10 years old now. And kind of the joke about Basmati Bags is that I just needed a bag. I never intended for this to be a business originally. Um, what had happened was this was during the Great Recession and I needed a new bag. And so I had spent about a week online. I, I'm from San Francisco. I'm native San Franciscan. So being in the Bay Area, it's kind of cool to be sustainable and to be ethical and this whole idea of slow fashion movement and kind of making sure that what you buy isn't putting, making kids in China work for slave wages mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I was shopping and shopping and shopping and I either found bags that were wonderfully beautiful, but clearly made by slave labor in a third world country or bags that were very ethical and sustainable, but not attractive at all. And so this went on and on and on and on. And I, at the time, was living with a, uh, I had a housemate who was an interior designer. And for those who aren't aware, the way that interior designers work is when they have a client, they'll bring all these fabric swatches and say, this will be your couch. These will be your cushions. This will be your drapes. And the client chooses from those samples. And then all those samples get thrown away. So she would regularly come back to the apartment with piles, you know, about this big of beautiful fabric that would be normally quite expensive and she would just throw them in the trash and being a bay area person i was like please please don't do that you're making me sad i'll i'll figure out something and uh, i'm also latina so there's always lots of rice and beans in my life and so at that i also had by coincidence a big pile of basmati rice bags that i was just saving because i didn't want to throw them away so one day all these things joined together i couldn't find the bag that i wanted I was frustrated at my housemate because she had all this fabric that she was going to throw away. And I had a lot of rice bags. So I decided, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to make myself a bag. So I'm actually a choreographer by train training. I have a lot of seamstresses in my family, but I am not, I did not start as an experienced seamstress. So you can imagine this thing I made, you know, was hand sewn. It was lopsided. Um, it was, had all these major flaws, but it was a bag, gosh darn it, and I needed a bag. So I proudly put this thing on, didn't think anything more of it, was wandering around, uh, took it to work one day actually, uh, the place I was working at the time, and the receptionist stops me and says, oh my god, where did you get that bag? And I was like, listen, that's very kind of you, but you're just having a moment. Nobody cares about, no one would buy these bags. So then I go back to, you know, my work area and another one of my colleagues stops me. He's like, oh, my God, where did you get that bag? That's very kind. But you're just, you know, it's early. You're not looking at it in the light. No one, no one cares. No one would buy this. So this goes on for about four months. And again, we're in the Great Recession. So I am constantly being bombarded at the same time by all these nonprofits who are struggling, arts organizations, which is a choreographer I care very much about, um, SCRAP, which is a really important reuse organization that school teachers use in San Francisco. And as all this is going on, I'm thinking, you know, I wanna help these businesses, but I really don't think it's helpful for me or sustainable for me to be writing these tiny little $20 checks every once in a while 
there has to be something else I can do. So one day I'm sitting in front of my computer, I'm looking at the rice bags, I'm looking at my little janky bag, I'm looking at these emails and I'm thinking, okay, I wonder if it's possible for me to create a small business that closes this loop, which is where our mission statement, style, sustainability, and stewardship comes from. That we start with style that lends itself to stewardship, supporting nonprofits in the community. Uh, or we start with style, we create things that are sustainable, and then that leads to stewardship in the community. So I took another six months because I still didn't really believe anyone cared to figure out if this would actually work. And it turns out it, it actually can be a business. And so that's what got me hooked. Again, choreographer, that's what got me hooked <laughs> was this idea of a social experiment. You know, I had all these people around me who were saying, that's great, but you can't really have a green small business. You can white, you can kind of greenwash your marketing to appear as though you're, you're sustainable and that you care about the planet, but you can't really do it. It's not profitable. You can't make it work. And so that was what it was what interested me. I was like, okay, I believe in beautiful fashion. I believe in sustainability. I'm curious if I could actually pull this off. So 10 years later, here we are. I'm really, really excited that we, I, we have such a loyal fan base and that our customers are so happy with what we do. Every day is an adventure. Um, so the details are that all these bags are 100% reclaimed fabric. So the only time I go into a fabric store is to look wistfully at all the rolls of fabric that I can't use because <laughs> we only, only use stuff that is reclaimed, which is on its way to landfill. So old upholstery fabric, old blue jeans, old boot leather, old saddle leather, um, torn, you know, sheets or drapes that are in too poor condition that are, you know, ripped and all that. That's the only material that we use. Uh, we also have partnerships with coffee companies, which is kind of how we graduated from the Basmati rice bags to what we primarily use now. So Cafe Umbria, which is based out of Seattle, they've been our supporters since day one. So they estimate, and this is a, this is pretty common, that every day a coffee roastery will, will go through about 400 bags of burlap. And these bags are huge. So you think about all the materials that they're generating that they, they try to get rid of, but they really need part, they could really benefit from partners to kind of give them a second life. So we've been working together literally since Basmati Bag started. And um, I am constantly surrounded by stray coffee beans and burlap dust from all the burlap they send me, which is why I'm wearing black so you can't see all the dust I have all over me. Yoga mats. We also take discarded yoga mats and torn stockings. So every day I'm constantly innovating and trying to figure out what is a material that naturally has a shelf life that is not currently being brought back into the loop of fat, you know, the fashion loop. And I try and figure out who could I get that from? And then I bug them until they give me the, the material and then we move forward. So we have several lines. So this is kind of our first line of basically small purses. I have, I have more. So you'll see this guy in the video if we have the video. But so these are just basic purses. We have a larger version. For many years, men would come up to me at trade shows and, and exclaim in frustration, why don't I have a man bag? And at first I thought they were kidding. Again, I seem to have a problem with taking people at face value when they talk about my business, but it turns out they don't. They weren't kidding. So we went into a line of messenger bags. Perfect. But yeah, the uh, so a lot European of carry really cool kind of graphic like interest because a lot of these coffee uh, bags will have cool things like there's one, my favorite says um, coffee. There's a company called Coffee and Brandy. Mm-hmm. 
And men love that, you know, walking or strutting around with a burlap bag that has brandy and coffee on it. They get very excited. <laughs> and then we also have a line of craft bags. And these are constantly evolving. I'm constantly creating new uh, bag lines. So if you didn't know, if you are not yourself a knitter or a crocheter, people in those crafts tend to be very, very sustainable. And my, my video quality isn't great. They, they care about the planet a lot, which I support. So we did an entire line just to kind of boost and celebrate our knitting friends, our crocheting friends who tend to have need a lot of bags and really, really want to support ethical, slow fashion companies. So we have that. And then the one I'm most excited about is the one we'll see the video about today. This is our new line of leather remnant bags. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, is that the sustainability part of our mission is not just about donating or ethically sourcing our materials, but making sure that all parts of the production process are as sustainable as possible. So how much water do we use? Um, our production partners, are they local or are we importing stuff from China too much? Do we do carbon offset? And most importantly for me, how much waste are we generating? So throughout the production process, if there's a way that I can take waste and reuse it again and reuse it again and reuse it again, so that the tail end is only that much waste, that's that for me is a good day. Yeah. So, and then the uh, stewardship piece is we have two kind of annual nonprofits here in San Francisco that we support. One is the food bank, which was, you know, just my idea of humor, which was, you know, we start with rice bags and we end in a way that supports the buying of more rice. Um, and right now, especially, they really, really, really need support for obvious reasons. And the other is Scrap, which is the Scrounger Center for Reusable Art Parts. And they are the main uh, reuse organization in San Francisco. They estimate they reclaim about 40 tons of materials. So that's paper, that's zippers, that's tiles, that's, you know, all kinds of crafty stuff every year. So it's about 12 school bus buses worth, I think they said, if you fill that. And they're really, really important for, especially for art teachers in San Francisco who aren't getting paid what they need to be paid and don't have enough money for supplies. They can go to scrap and really kind of stock up and make sure their kids have what they need for the classroom. So every year we donate 3% of our profits to those organizations. And then we, you know, we, I always look for other ways to do cool stuff. I think my favorite example, um, if anyone knows the H&M department store mm -hmm. uh, chain, they used to accept textiles for recycling. They no longer do. But when they did, we used to take all our textile waste to them and get coupons for clothes and then buy clothing and donate that clothing to Dress for Success, which is an organization that puts uh, women who've fallen into hard time back to work by giving them clothes they can wear for interviews. So the, uh, the concept is that style, sustainability, and stewardship become a closed loop process. Like we make bags, we generate waste, we buy clothes, we donate to nonprofits, we make more bags, rather than just being discrete pieces. Um, and that's the exciting part for me. I mean, I, I love fashion. I love to see beautiful things. Um, but again, this is not, I enjoy very much what I do, but this is not what I thought, how I thought my life trajectory was going to go. So it's that I get to kind of have this business in this special way that really excites me. And like, I think really excites our customers and gets people excited about what we do. So 
was that a big enough field? We want, do oh, we want was, to see the video? <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, I got the video here ready to go. But yeah, yeah. that's so amazing <laughs> using the, the different materials and obviously the proofs in the bag right there. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me. Um, uh, the laptop and Zoom are having a little issue with the video for some reason because computers. So uh, sorry, we're going to have to sort of. Uh, um jimmy rig this one here we are being innovators so here it is on steve's phone yeah uh yeah so i think the the most interesting thing that people kind of ask me about is you know if you basically have minimal you know material costs because all our stuff is reclaimed like why are they at the price point that they are and my response is well you know reclaiming is actually a huge adventure in labor Right. How much time do I want to spend extracting that zipper from that pair of jeans? How much time do we want to spend, you know, reclaiming this hardware? So there's that. And then there's also kind of the, the interesting thing about the slow fashion movement is, OK, so we're not going to have stuff made by children in China anymore. That means going from like a three dollar an hour labor rate like a 10 to 15 dollar an hour labor rate so part of the adventure for me is figuring out i i want to be as accessible and as generous with our customers as we can because again you know these are like my 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 loving loving family i love my customers um but it's an adventure it's figuring out how do we balance a great design without it needing 20 hours to be produced because uh, then you're talking about like a four thousand dollar bag, which it doesn't. Yeah. Nothing is that pretty <laughs> that we that we want to pay that. Um, so you know, there's so much interesting stuff that I'm learning, and part of why I'm sharing this with the group is because one of the most satisfying things that I get out of this is being able to talk to other makers who are maybe thinking about going greener in their production, but really struggling with these these questions of, can it be done? You know, I live in San Francisco, one of the most expensive cities in the world, definitely in the nation. So, you know, what does that mean if I'm trying to get stuff produced locally and have a marketable product and make it accessible for as many people as possible? So that's a segue, just so everyone remembers, I'm actually doing, in celebration of Podcart, we're doing free shipping for our entire store um, all weekend long. Um, so if the, you go to my Etsy store, which is Basmati Bag, so Etsy.com slash shop slash yes, downstairs, right. um, <laughs> and use the coupon code PodcartFest when you check out all one word, you will have free shipping on anything in our store, which normally we have some stuff that's free shipping, but we can't, we're not able to provide free shipping on everything. Um, and I also mm-hmm. want to mention as part of our sustainability plug, we do a Earth Day contest every April, which is now. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's interested in following us on Instagram, which is Basmati Bags, um, we basically do a photo contest where we ask our friends and fans to share images of nature that they love and appreciate. And then we pick one winner and they get a $50 coupon for our store, anything in our store that's good for a year. Oh, um, so those are kind of ways that we look to give back because uh, we know, especially now, things are tough. Things are tough for sellers. Things are tough for buyers. And we really want to kind of emphasize again and again and again that we're com- we're really coming from a good place. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this is a small business that's looking to do good in the world. And um, it's not always perfect, but my intention as the official boss lady, which I'm, as I'm called, <laughs> um, is to continually try and find the best balance of all these things to really, you know, help sustainable fashion and slow fashion succeed. 
Um, so there's my spiel. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I, perfect, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I think you've sold a couple here. So, <laughs> well, uh, you want to throw into as somebody who also is a big proponent of like slowing, slower fashion, uh, consuming less, and all of that. Uh, when you have a prior pr- higher price point item, the idea isn't that you need to have six of these bags. It's that you have one or two that you genuinely love, that you save up for, you invest in, and you have something that nobody else is going to have. Each one's an individual and that you really love it and cherish it and take care of it for, for, you know, years to come. So, and, and let me tell you, in terms of our production process, I am very rough on my stuff. So the bag, if the bag can survive me, then the bag (laughs) is ready for market. And, you know, I've seen other people who use burlap who maybe haven't thought as carefully about what it means to use an open. So here's a little fun fact. Mm-hmm. Burlap material is meant to be loose weave, which means it has space between it because the coffee beans apparently need to breathe. And the cacao beans, if you're shipping chocolate beans, they need to breathe, which is fine for the coffee and the cacao beans. But if you're trying to make that into a material that will last, ideally you need to do stuff to it you need to back it or you need to reinforce it somehow to make it last and i've seen a lot of burlap products where that step is skipped and you know i think in those cases part of why those sellers are able to sell like 20 dollars bags is because they're not doing that and i'm at the opposite extreme we treat all our fabric with a um I won't go into too much trade secrets, but like a, an environmentally uh, safe epoxy to you know give it more structure. We back all our fabric so that it's actually double layered. So the idea is that um, when you buy a bag, it should last you at least a year. Even if you're carrying around razor blades and you know 20 pound weights, if you buy the correct bag, it should be a reliable bag. And I actually I have an ongoing debate with my grandmother because she keeps buying basmati bags and I keep telling her, stop. You needed one, maybe two. You have like 20. Isn't it? It's enough. So and for people, if anyone online today has actually joined me at a in-person event, you know, I always tell people I do not want you to buy a bag unless it is your bag, unless you feel good about it. I'm never going to be that person who's like, oh yeah, whatever you need to hear is what I'm going to say to make sure you put that in your cart. Part of this social experience, this idea behind Basmati bags is that, can we believe that you can thrive without doing that manipulation? Just like, what is it? Are you, are you in a point in your life where you need a bag? Cause that's where I, this whole process started with me. <laughs> and if so, do any of these speak to you? You know, do, are you invested in our mission? And, you know, I'm so gratified with all the times that I'll have people who contact me and say, you know, I bought this for my cousin or my sister, but then it came in the mail and I didn't want to give it to her because I liked it too much. So now <laughs> I'm back to buy one for myself, right? That tells me that we're going in the right direction. Wonderful. Yeah, perfect, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing. And again, yeah. go down to the shops, Downstairs, check guys. it all out. Check yeah, out and the, the coupon code is active both today and tomorrow. So if you need to think about it again, you'll know if it's your time and it's your bag. Each bag is one of a kind. So I will warn you it's, if you see a bag you love now and are like, Oh, I'll get it in six months and it's gone. It's gone forever because all the materials are reclaimed. So it's very difficult for me to recreate something exactly multiple times. Um, so yeah. <laughs> do with that information what you will. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're shopping small and, uh, and, and shopping sustainable because we don't want mass produced stuff. We're not buying a $4 bag from H and M that's made by slave labor and every other girl on YouTube has, we have something or every guy, we, we have something unique and different and guys remember mother's day is coming. That's right. You know, if you need just that really special gift or perhaps your husband's turning 40 and you already gave him his gift, his birthday's up for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is, it's quite possible that Basmati Bags will also be having a Mother's Day sale at the tail end of April, so spoiler alert. So go ahead and uh, follow you. Where should we follow you? Are you on the social so, medias? Yes. The best way to follow us is on Instagram. So again, that's Basmati Bags. Uh, we're also on Facebook, but the majority of our communication, we really try and reward our followers. So the followers on Instagram are the first to know about contests, sales, special magical deals, unicorns, you know, we're bringing through the store, anything special that's happening goes first to our Instagram following and then is shared on Facebook. So my recommendation would be Instagram, but you can also follow us on Facebook and most of the Instagram posts end up on Facebook as well. So you'll know about the important stuff. Excellent. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for supporting the very first ever Podcart Fest. I know these things are always weird and scary, especially when it's unknown. (laughs) We appreciate you guys taking the leap of faith and joining us. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. everybody this is joey calvez i want to tell you guys a little bit about the department of metahuman affairs this one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick two felons a failed actor from broadway and a reprogrammed cyborg but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank and they will have to set the world at ease you're gonna get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now 